Welcome to Seemingly Ordinary. It's a podcast about people who, on the surface, might appear to be totally ordinary, but underneath the surface, they have amazing things going on. Flattery is the owner of Simple Wealth Planning in North Kansas City, Missouri. He helps young and affluent families in the earlier stages of wealth building, but really, I think he could help anybody. He's happily married to Ginevra and their bright three-year-old son, Leo. In his spare time, Andy plays a ton of rec sports, and he does trail runs, and he has an artistic streak. He plays guitar, he reads about two books a month, and he hosts various podcasts. Uh, His main podcast is the Reformed Financial Advisor, but he also contributes to Catholic Money Mastermind. And then there's a third one, but I think he's more of an occasional contributor on this one called, it's a sports podcast called The Moonlight Graham Show. Honestly, with all this going on, I don't know how he has time to do all that. Andy, I feel like I missed a few things. Um, How are you, by the way? I'm doing well. Hey, that was a great intro, but you did forget my other son, Henry Boy. Um, okay. So little Henry's like seven months, so we got to throw him in there. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Um, I just have so many questions to ask you just about how to live, how to plan, what to do in specific situations. Um, but before I ask just any of that, I want to ask this question first. What do you wish you would have... When, I'm sorry, when do you wish you would have started to learn about personal finance? That's a really good question. And I think it's, um, it kind of goes back to being a young man who thinks he knows it all. And um, I think just going back, like there were plenty of opportunities for me to learn things a whole lot sooner. But as a young man, sometimes you're just not all that curious. Um, you think you know everything and you, and you don't know the questions to even ask. Um, so there were always opportunities for me to learn about personal finance a lot sooner. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, I think as a teenager, um, it would have been a great opportunity for me to even dive deeper into what I was doing at the time. As a kid, were you a saver or were you a spender or halfway in between? I was probably a, a spender, my little brother, Tim, who was like my best bud, he, uh, he was definitely the, the miser in the family. He was the kid that always had like the, um, you know, like the huge uh, gallon jug of change. That, Cause that's what people used to do. They would save change. I don't know. Do people even do that anymore? Well, I do. Okay, good. Yeah. I, I mean, it's too bad that that's kind of gone away, but he was, he was a, a hardcore, uh, sa- uh, saver and I was more of a spender, um, and uh, I don't know, I think I was just kind of a personality trait, honestly, because our mom is definitely a saver, too. So I, I was maybe more on my dad's side. Dad is more of a spender. Okay, okay. Is there anything else about being a kid with personal finance that you would like to bring up? And then after that, I think we'll get into your belief system. I mean, I think you draw a lot from your parents. So I, I mentioned my mother. Um, one of the themes is just like, I think I've just kind of grown to be a mix of, of my parents. I remember my mom, as a kid, she, she worked for an attorney. And, and this is one of those attorneys who had a small practice and he would like gift his employees books all the time, you know? And, and, it, and one of the books was that, was that little book called 
The Wealthy Barber. Do you remember that one? Well, I've heard of it. I'm ashamed to say I haven't read it. It's like a classic personal finance book. I think it maybe was put out in the 90s. And it's about this barber who um, you know, makes kind of a modest income throughout his career, but he's able to kind of grow wealthy by just kind of following basic personal finance practices. Um, and that was, I read that and I don't think my mom did, but she brought it home. It was on a shelf. And so there were just little opportunities like that um, that my mom presented um, that were meaningful for me growing up. So I think you kind of, you kind of model your parents for better or for worse. Yeah, I I 100% think that is true. Um, I, I feel like most people in life have two ideas. They have whatever their parents came up with, and then they have the polar opposite of that. You know, so I think that's why when people go off to college, maybe sometimes they just do the opposite of what they got from mom and dad. You know, so I guess the extreme case, if your parents were firefighters, then, you know, if you go the opposite way, you become an arsonist. Um, mm-hmm. That's kind of the joke, you know, along those lines. But it's, it's hard for people to come up with a third idea, but I think that's what happens when we read and get education, then maybe we do develop a third idea. So, okay, so your belief system, do you have a particular belief system when it comes to personal finance? I definitely came from, you know, like a lot of us, I came from the Dave Ramsey school. Um, I probably closely align with um, a great guy, Joshua Sheets, who has a podcast and does courses and that kind of stuff. He's kind of an internet Dave Ramsey, if you will. Um, I would say I most kind of gravitate towards this idea of low time preference. It's kind of an idea in Austrian economics. Are you familiar with this well, idea I, at all? I know about Austrian economics, but I'm embarrassed to say I don't know what low time preference is. It's, well, you'll, you'll, you'll totally get what I'm, what I'm getting at. The, the idea of low time preference is, me, meaning, is meaning acting in a way that's not about today, um, but thinking about the long term. So uh, maybe the best example of low time preference are like these, um, uh, these medieval Christians who are building cathedrals with the intention that they were going to survive for hundreds and maybe even thousands of years. Mm. Uh, they're building these institutions that are not for today. They're not, they're not intended to be, um, um, you know, consumed over a 20 year period and, and then replaced. They're, they're intending to give glory to God for hundreds or even thousands of years. So you can, you can bring that idea of low time preference to your business. Maybe you want to build a business that, um, you want to pass on to your, your following generations, you can think about that in terms of your retirement. Um, you're choosing to not consume today with the idea that you can consume, consume a lot tomorrow, or even like with your multi-generational legacy. So the idea of, of getting married and having children and your children will have children and maybe you can pass on not just a monetary legacy, but, um, uh, you know, your, your, your values to the, the generations. Um, so that's this idea of low time preference. I kind of, I think fits into really everything we're trying to do in personal finance where um, the idea it's, it's, it's not just um, kind of learning the reading the books and kind of learning the stuff, but it's also just kind of building uh, even kind of building virtue um, of, uh, of, of, of kind of having a low time preference mentality. Okay. Well, I, I feel like that kind of gets into my next question, so we can definitely talk more about that. Um, just in general, what are your general rules and principles? 
what you know what are your standards what what guides you okay so this is really important because there's like a lot of ways we could go with this but i i kind of like this simple framework of saying there's really only five things that you can do there's really only five things that you can do with your money um you can up your income that's the first thing you can decrease your expenses you can invest wisely you can avoid catastrophe and you can optimize your lifestyle so increase your income decrease expenses invest wisely avoid catastrophe and optimize your lifestyle and so if you can can you think about like sometimes especially in like 2021 the modern financial system is so complicated well if you can kind of break it down into one of these five categories it helps you understand what problems might need to be solving and maybe what what you don't need to solve because there might be things you're doing quite well already okay well these are really good um gosh um how do you want to do this should we discuss each of them one at a time, for example, you could give advice regarding people's income and then after that expenses and so on. Let's do it. Okay. Let's start with the first thing that you mentioned, income. Yeah, I mean, this is probably the one that is maybe most ignored in personal finance. Um, Everyone knows you're you're supposed to spend less than you earn, but there's also the question of how do you earn in the first place? Um, and the best, the best thing I can tell you is maybe think about your, your income or your job as, you know, like a business owner. So if as a business owner, which I am, one of the things that I want to do is if I'm charging a fee to a client, I want to provide multiples upon multiples of return for that client on the fee that I charge. So you can think about your income the same way if, if you're, um, if you're working for an employer and the employer is paying you $50,000 a year, a year, would you want to deliver a return for that employer? That's multiples upon multiples of that $50,000 income. So you want to earn your employer a hundred thousand or 500,000 or even a million dollars of return on that investment for him, because that makes you very, very valuable. And so, um, you know, there are a lot of ways to do that. And, um, know, we could go into all sorts of different directions, but I think that's the way you should think about it. And for, for young people. So, you know, I, I work with families in like their thirties and forties. I have a couple of clients that I work with in their twenties. For most of us far in a way, Tim, the, the biggest asset that we have, if you crunch the numbers is the future income that we're going to earn. God willing. Um, so, you know, you could, you could, you could do the math and, and, and figure out like, hey, how should I optimize my investment portfolio? But really the, the real question is, well, how, how are you going to earn an income over, you know, the next several decades? Because um, that's that's really a, a huge game changer. So, yeah, what are your thoughts? Well, I would really love to know. Um, okay, so like let's say you're talking with a young person and they just landed a job and I don't know, they're making $32,000 a year. Um, the median income in the United States might be between about fifty and fifty-five thousand a year. How does that person increase income? I, I got your point about well, give the employer lots of value back. You know, give them five times, ten times, twenty times the value back on that thirty-two thousand. Um, how does that person? I don't know. Maybe get an eight thousand dollar raise or potentially double 
their income to 64 or, or even larger? How does a person do that? So I like this framework. Um, I think I got it from Med Faber, but he probably got it from somewhere else. And it's your 20s are for learning, your 30s are for earning, and your 40s are for owning. Now, of course, wherever you're at in life, you know, you can change the numbers and change the dates because, you know, that's kind of a, a bit of a trite way of looking at it. But the idea there is that, okay, so if you think about what you're trying to accomplish in your 20s, it really should just be for learning. So don't necessarily worry about, um, hey, I make $32,000 and I want to make sure that I have an increase in income next year that's higher than inflation. It, maybe that's not the, the point. The, the point is perhaps that the 20 should be the time when maybe you work for somebody for free. <laughs> Gary, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk is talking about that. Maybe, maybe you find the person that you want to become and you try to provide value to him for free. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a trade-off, right? You're not, you're not, you're not going to be on the fast track to early retirement, which maybe we'll talk about. But the idea is that if you can educate yourself in your twenties, you take some risks, maybe you don't earn as much, but you have a ability to learn. Then in your thirties, you look at that as your opportunity to really earn a nice income to set yourself up for perhaps down the road. Maybe it's in your forties, you're into owning. So maybe you own a piece of the business you work for. Maybe you're going to try to start your own business because you've had a chance to uh, both learn your craft and also maybe earn enough income that you have a bit of a nest egg to go off on your own. And so I kind of like that framework. I think maybe that's a good, a good transition that people could think about. Yeah, I do too. I like the idea that first of all, it's not a get rich quick scheme, but then also too, I think uh, Dave Ramsey's got a saying that I like, which is the man who chases the dollar never catches it. And last time I looked up Dave Ramsey's net worth, it's about $55 million. But he believes that you get that net worth because you're providing so much value to other people, which you can only do, I guess, through learning, but then also through hard work. You have to know more and you just have to outwork other people. Um, I I like your framework. I think it's good. Um, Okay, let's move on to the second one, if you don't mind, which was expenses. Um, what suggestions do you make for people regarding expenses? And then I think we're going to get into much more detail with this later as well. I mean, I've had a chance over a decade to kind of look under the hood of hundreds and probably thousands of people's finances. And what I can tell you is, you know, what you hear about is 100% true, where there are people that earn a humble income that are able to save. And there are people that earn um, hundreds of thousands of dollars or even the seven figure income that are in literally in the rat race of trying to keep up with the kind of monthly to month to month expenses. And so I think the biggest piece of encouragement that I have for folks here is that you really, you really can kind of choose your own adventure here. Um, I mean, luckily we could talk about how Maybe there are some ways where the modern world has its challenges, but for the most part, I mean, we still have a lot of options. If if you want to try to live off of a humble income, there are definitely ways to do it. Um, Of course, it's always better to, it's always easier if you earn a nicer income, but, but there are ways to cut expenses. There are, there are ways to, to save money and not have to be in the the so-called rat race. 
Um, but sometimes it, it means making tough choices. It means making kind of pretty foundational changes with your life. So, um, you know, of course, like we can talk about cutting out Starbucks and what that could do for you over the long run. But the biggest things that really matter are, you know, the big things like where are you going to live? What, what are you going to do for transportation? Um, how are you, how are you going to feed yourself? Uh, what, what are your healthcare costs? You know, kind of those are the foundational pillars that if you can kind of structurally align your life in a way that optimizes those areas, um, most people, at least in the U.S. today, are able to live off of an income. And that's uh, it's pretty encouraging. Yeah, well, absolutely. I, I always wonder, you'd hear these things about, for example, maybe a developing world country where they would say, okay, the average person needs so much money just to stay alive. And then they would say, but half the country is below that level. But they were still alive is kind of what mm -hmm. I noticed is. And so sometimes the statistics people put out, uh, you know, they say you need this or you need that. One I remember from a long time ago was people saying that it takes $180,000 to raise a child. And then you would meet these families that have nine children and the kids yeah. all grew up to be cheerful and happy and they get a good education, but there was just no way those parents were spending $180,000 per child. Um, right. it, it just simply wasn't happening. So um, I guess my thought on expenses is people really have to do a budget and then they have to get creative with absolutely every element in the budget. If you've got 12 things listed that you spend money on, for example, housing, transportation, and food, you have to come up with maybe two or three alternatives for each thing. You know, I, I don't think it's just a matter of trying harder. I, I think it's a matter of thinking more and then putting things into practice. Um, do you have more thoughts on this in general before we get into specifics? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. And I think um, what you said about children is a, a great point because we've all heard, we've all read those articles, those clickbait articles that like just talk about the cost of, you know, it's, it's a million dollars to get a child to age 18. And, you know, practically speaking, I, I get it. I look at people's finances, so I know how much St. James Academy costs for tuition, but literally children are free. Like they actually are free. Um, it, it literally is a free, you know, if you, you call it a gift from God, if you want to. Um, now, of course, like we, most of us living in the modern world, like we want to be able to provide a nice life for our children. So I understand that there's going to be a cost with that. But, um, but there are choices that you can make to make it possible to, you know, have children. It, it's, it's very, very possible. That's one of my critiques of, the whole the the financial independence retire early the fire movement is that a lot of them do seem to be kind of have a minimalist mindset about family as well um and uh and i don't think you ha necessarily have to be because children literally are free you might just have to make some sacrifices um could you clarify just a little bit because okay children don't eat very much but they do eat something and food costs money and so I, I could see where maybe where they stay is free because they stay with you so maybe housing is free transportation is free because they just ride in the same vehicle with you until you have eight of them and then you probably have to buy a van or something like that. Um, could you clarify when you say children are free? Yeah, I just mean that it, it doesn't, it literally does not cost anything to have a child. So I only mean that in the sense that, um, 
people have been having children for thousands and thousands of years, and they've actually figured out how to do it without spending $19,000 at the hospital, which is how much we spent, by the way, the last time we delivered our child. Of course, thank God we had insurance. But, but my point is, like, my wife literally, that process that cost us $19,000 was a natural birth. So we did it through ways that women have been doing it for thousands and thousands of years. Now, of course, we were glad to be in a hospital because what if there were complications? Uh, but they're literally free. And one of the things that you, you learn when, when you work with large families, so families with a lot of kids, is that especially in the world, the world that we live in today, like big families do get some assistance. Um, you can get assistance at school. I mentioned St. James Academy. Um, you know, like the, even the government provides a lot of assistance for big families these days. You're going to have friends and family that are just going to give you stuff. So like we, you know, we get hand-me-downs from neighbors and stuff like that. Um, so I, I don't, I'm not like downplaying the fact that, yeah, you want to feed your children, obviously. Um, but you can make choices. Like you can breastfeed your children, which is a, that's a, that's a hundred percent free way to, 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 to feed your, your, your babies. Instead of spending two grand a month at daycare, you can choose to maybe stay home with your kids. Um, that's my only point. So, like, don't want to downplay the fact. And I obviously I understand that we don't live in a, a time where you're going to, like, put all your kids to work on the farm so they can, like, generate an ROI. Like, that's probably – we're not probably going to go back to that anytime soon. But uh, maybe just trying to pump the brakes on, like, really – um, you know, being more negative on the, the idea that children are expensive. Yeah, I just, okay, I love that. And I agree completely. I'm just a big fan of huge families. Um, let's move on to question three, which is okay. invest. Um, and, and I think I've got a bunch of very specific investment questions for you. We could cool. do those now or later. What are your general thoughts on investment? Okay, so um, I mentioned this idea of low time preference. If if you have the ability to consume less today so that you can um, have low time preference and achieve goals tomorrow, that you're already ahead of the game. Well, most people are not able to save 10 to 20% of their income. And so that's, um, that's a lot of freedom if you're able to do that because it gives you a lot of ability to um, not be dependent on you know, something like the state, for example. One of the things that we learned in 2020 is that there were a lot of people that did not, did not have $1,000 or $10,000 in their savings account. So that when, uh, you know, once in a, a lifetime uh, COVID pandemic happens, you know, you're not able to get through a period of, of a job loss. And so the ability to save money is, is freedom. So what? So why invest? Um, the the problem is some the idea of saving money and then and then just leaving it at that is problematic when the money is inflationary. Mm. And so Tim, you'll know, you'll know what I'm talking about. But but we've all maybe you've seen this chart. I have this chart that I'll I'll show people sometimes. The the St. Louis Fed put together where it shows the the purchasing power power of the dollar. Uh, when the when the dollar went off the gold standard in 1914, originally, uh, or, sorry, the establishment of the Federal Reserve in 1914, and they went off the gold standard in 1971. But what what you see over the last hundred plus years is that just the dollar doesn't buy as much stuff as it used to. Well, it's it's down at least 95 percent. Exactly. I yeah. Mean, it's, exactly. It's, it's ridiculous. And, and, 
and even in my lifetime, I'm 36 years old. So even in my lifetime, you know, when I was a kid, I think it was like maybe six or seven bucks to go to a movie. And now it's probably, I don't know what, 13 or $14. I haven't been to a movie in a while, but that's the example I always think of. And so, so for better or for worse, like that kind of core principle of like saving money is, is freedom. We actually have to take it to another step where now it's like, not only do you have to save money, but you actually have to like, you actually have to like do double the work of like save. And then you actually have to invest wisely. Um, and then, so it's kind of problematic. And so that's why you see people investing in the stock market. You see people investing in real estate because these are asset classes that over time have proven to um, beat inflation. And so that's kind of my general framework. Um, and investing can be fun too. It doesn't have to be like um, like this negative thing, but I think for most people, like they actually do have to invest because of inflation. Um, and that would be, that would have, probably be something that my, my grandmother wouldn't have related to. Uh, my grandmother who went through the a great depression, lost the farm in 1930s, Iowa. When she died, we found cash, at, you know, in, in boxes in the house. But now I think you're seeing that, you know, after decades and decades of inflation, most people realize that that's the system that we're in and that they're going to have to invest in some way, shape or form. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Giving um, a little bit of thought to the whole depression era mentality, my grandparents fit into that category too. And mm-hmm. people just very strongly remember the crash of 1929. Um, mm-hmm. And then I think by 1931, the stock market had lost literally 90% of its value and there are many, many reasons for that, but the reasons really are not important um, for our discussion. But what wound up happening with people like my grandparents was they just swore off the stock market for life. Uh, I mean, th- their attitude was, is, gosh, that's a casino. Uh, maybe it's a rigged mm-hmm. casino. Uh, it's, it's certainly a casino where we're not going to make any money. You know, you're going to put in a dollar and you're going to take out 10 cents. I mean, as far as they were concerned, this, the stock market was slightly better than, or maybe slightly worse than suicide. It was just one of the dumbest things that you could possibly do. Um, but all of that being said, um, I think if you exclude 1929, it's really good to be in the stock market. Uh, the stock market's gone up by average, I think, of 9.5% since roughly the 1890s, which as far back as we have data. Um, that's my understanding. Is that pretty much your understanding? A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, if you, uh, there's a great book, uh, uh, and I, I can't remember the name of it right now, but yeah, it, it looks at kind of long-term data. And I think one of the things that you see is just the resiliency of entrepreneurs over decades to, um, continuously figure out ways to deal with the environment that we're in. So, um, but I don't know if I necessarily would blame my grandmother because like the financial system is a lot more, um, it's a lot more stable and a lot more um, kind of professionalized than what it would have been 80 to hundred years ago when literally like it, it was kind of the wild, wild west. Um, and so, so now, you know, you can buy an index fund, like it's buying a CD at the bank, but that was not always the case. Um, it really seemed a lot more like gambling when our, when our grandparents were. Absolutely. Kind of going through that. 
Yeah, I yeah, I'm definitely not blaming my grandparents. They came up with alternative mm-hmm. investments. They came up with real estate, for example, and a bunch mm-hmm. of them were farmers. So, um, hey, let's move into your fourth principle, which is avoid catastrophe. Okay, so this is the one that like men don't always like to talk about, but um, you know they're black swan events in in life. Are you familiar with the term black swan? Well, I I am. Please clarify for everybody. Okay, so like we've all done maybe the financial calculators where you figure out, hey, if I save X percent of my income over this period of time, and I'm able to resist, invest at this return, like. Where does that leave me in 30 years and what kind of retirement that I can have? That's a very um, kind of that's a good place to start. But the problem is like, you know, the black, the proverbial black swan is is the is the random thing that was never supposed to happen. But then when it does happen, um, you realize that it's not impossible. So like, uh, you know, when the black swan was was uh, discovered in like the 19th century or something like that, we realized that it was possible to have a black swan, right? Most, most swans are white. And so, so the black swan is, um, you know, what if you, what, you know, what if you, what if you die prior, prior to that um, event taking place, the retirement taking place, what if you become disabled um, and you're no longer able to earn an income, which, you know, we said earlier was probably most young people's biggest asset. Um, what if you have a significant, uh, significant health situation? What if, what if you, what if you generate cancer, which results, um, not only in years and years of going through chemo, but maybe a, probably a million dollar bill at the hospital. Hmm. Um, so those are kind of these black swan events that especially men don't want to think about. Um, my wife thinks about it a lot because my wife is an oncology nurse. She sees it every day. But when I have these conversations with like young fathers, for example, it's always, there's always a little bit of pushback because we don't want to talk about these events. We, you know, we, we assume that everything's going to be hunky-dory. Um, but so that's kind of what avoid catastrophe is in, in a real basic level. Okay. What you can do, you can just put together your basic insurances. Um, you can acquire some, some life insurance. You can acquire disability insurance, acquire, acquire health insurance, property and casualty. And uh, it's not fun to talk about, but I think, I think it makes sense especially in a competitive market where these things are pretty um, competitively priced to, to have basic insurance in place. If a person could only afford, say, one or two of those, which one or two would you get? I think the studies actually show that disability insurance is the, is the biggest bang for your buck. Um, you know, again, kind of going back to the idea that your income is your most most valuable asset. Um, I think the studies have shown that like that's been the biggest ROI over time. But I think, I think certainly if you have a family, if you have young children, there's no, there's no conceivable reason not to have term level term life insurance. If you are healthy enough to qualify for it. Um, to me, that makes perfect sense. And, and it's with interest rates being so low, it's so cheap that I'm able to acquire for my family a pretty pretty sizable amount of life insurance for not a lot of money. Um, so I think life insurance and disability both make a ton of sense. Okay. So when, when you say life insurance, you mean primarily term insurance. And can you clarify for people what exactly is term insurance? Okay. So this is probably, you know, if you read like personal finance 101, most people should start with level term life insurance if they're looking to acquire life insurance for the family. So, um, 
you know, in a perfect world, what you would do is you would save money, you would invest, and then someday you would have your nest egg and there would be no reason for life insurance because you have, you have, um, you know, piles and piles of wealth that you can pass on to your generations and you can retire and everything is fine. What you can do in the meantime, though, is if that doesn't happen the way that you would like, um, because you maybe, maybe you, you just don't live that long, um, you can acquire life insurance to insure your, your family in the event that that, that event doesn't happen. And so, so the example of level term life insurance is you can pick a term, you can pick 10 years, 20 years, there's even 30 year term policies that I have, where over that period of time, what you do is you pay just a, a simple monthly premium that, that doesn't go up and you can acquire as little as uh, $100,000 of insurance up to you know a few million dollars of, of, of term insurance. And what that is, since it's a term, is it's, it's like a stopgap. So like eventually, hopefully you'll have a million, two million dollars plus but in the meantime, it's uh, it's basically leaving your legacy for your loved ones until you get to that point. And so it's a stopgap um, until you are, quote unquote, self-insured. Gotcha. Gotcha. So over those 10, 20, 30 years, I should be saving and investing. And then when I do, maybe at the end of all that, I'll have somewhere between 100000 and who knows, maybe $2 million, at which point basically I'm self-insured. Yeah, so like I'm, I'm a, I have a young, I have a young family. I've got a, a wife and two young children, and so if God forbid something were to happen to me, I would want them to have a legacy. And unfortunately, I'm not a multimillionaire yet, and so one of the simple things I can do is until I get to that point, I can just put together some basic insurance for my children so that my wife can um, send them to Catholic school. Um, we can do all the things that I was going to do while, while I was living, but, um, but life insurance can make sure that that happens. And so it's a way of kind of planning beyond your, beyond your life to do the things that you want to make sure that are done for your children. Okay. Okay. Um, your last major principle is optimize. What do you mean by optimize? Yeah. So a lot of these, a lot of these are kind of nerdy dollars and cents numbers things, but sometimes the idea of optimizing lifestyle is, uh, is a lot more basic than that. So, um, you know, instead of trying to figure out which daycare to send your children to, because, you know, Kansas city daycare is crazy and it's really hard to find like a good daycare for your children. Maybe the answer is to, um, move closer to family, or maybe the answer is to, um, you know, to build an addition to your house where your parents can live as they as they grow older, and and, and they can you know take part in in raising children, and, and you don't have to spend all of that money for daycare. So what I mean by optimizing lifestyles is all those things you can do that affect your finances, but they aren't necessarily something you're going to learn from sitting with your financial advisor or going through Financial Peace University. Okay. Okay. That's a really good example because the family example that you just mentioned, if that's possible for people, well, gosh, now you've got an intergenerational household, which was how I think humans have lived for thousands of years in other countries. And sometimes in this country, um, the grandchildren get to know the grandparents, but everybody now has cheaper rent as well because we're all in one household. I, it could just be a very good solution. And then I think you also mentioned 
maybe don't go to daycare. Maybe one of the parents or both of the parents from time to time, they trade off taking care of the kid. I, I think these are really, really intriguing, interesting out-of-the-box solutions. Do you have one more on the optimization? Yeah, so just kind of piggybacking off of that intergenerational household idea. I mean, that used to be um, kind of the replacement for Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid, which now is kind of necessary because we, we don't want our, our poor and elderly to um, be neglected. But the way that it used to be is that they would have been taken care of inside of their own communities. Um, and so one of the things you can do is instead of maybe having to buy like an expensive long-term care policy, because I, you know it's something like $80,000 a year that it takes to live in a nursing home right now, um, give or take, one of the things you could do is try to figure out how to, you know, how to, how to, how to take care of mom, it may be in your own home, which is a big sacrifice, but that's what people used to do. Oh, for sure. Instead of sending them to a nursing home, they would, they would just, you know, you would live with your elderly parents. Um, and so that's an example of that, that, you know, I've seen people do that. You know, they, again, they, maybe they build the addition to their house. Maybe they, um, Maybe they just like uh, what I've seen some friends do recently is like you literally buy a house on the same block as your as your parents. <laughs> you're getting the you know maybe it's a little bit of the entitled millennial thing, but you're getting the so-called free babysitting from your your folks. Uh-huh. Um, and well, so yeah, I mean there's a, there's a number of ways you can think about optimizing lifestyle. Uh, you know, a simple one could just be perhaps you now that everyone is working from home and doing Zoom meetings instead of like in-person meetings, maybe you move to a place that uh, isn't dependent on where your office is. So I've got some friends right now that are building a a house in Harrisonville because they no longer work in Kansas City. Um, You know, last year they they, uh, worked for a company that went entirely, um, entirely virtual. And so that's an example of like, well, now they can move out to the boonies um, because it's better for their lifestyle. Sure. Well, gosh, you know, it, kind of getting back to the whole entitled millennial thing, if that's an entitlement for millennials to have family, uh, extended family help out with their kids, uh, I, I think that's not just millennials, but I think that's for every millennium because it's been going on for thousands of years. I, I think, hey, Social Security and all that, that's great. That's been around since 1935. That's 86 years. That's a blip. That's just an absolute blip in human history. Uh, We think of it as eternal because 86 years is a long time. But I mean, for thousands of years, people have relied on family. Um, And, you know, maybe that's just a better lifestyle, just being close with family, having to get along with family, enjoying family. Um, I guess that's what I'm all about personally. But Okay, so let's let's get into some broader philosophical questions, and then we'll get into some nuts and bolts on various things. Um, broader philosophical questions. We've already kind of discussed Dave Ramsey. I, I love um, the fact that you're kind of in the Dave Ramsey, but I'd love to know what do you really like about Dave Ramsey, and do you have any areas of disagreement with Dave Ramsey? I, I just feel like Dave is the perfect starting point for everybody. I feel like everybody needs Dave, but I also feel like People also need to retain their own agency. 100%. Yeah, I mean, I think if we're going to talk about personal finance, and I'm not like a master of personal finance, but 
it, it has to start with Dave Ramsey because he's the common language that all of us have to start with. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, my, my story with Dave Ramsey is I had um, student loan debt out of college. I had uh, I had some credit card debt when I was in my 20s and a friend gave me the total money makeover book and even making the humble income that I was making after the financial crisis in 2009, I was able to uh, save with gazelle-like intensity and get out of debt. And the best thing I have to say about Dave Ramsey, and I think the biggest thing he has to offer the world is that he is a motivator. He, he's a motivator and, and he, he does it through kind of tough love. And I think we need that. I mean, we need someone to tell us that it's not okay to go into debt to pay for regular expenses. It's not okay to do that. Um, and so I like that. I think, I, think, um, um, I think that's a wonderful thing about Dave. Um, wh- what would I have to critique about Dave? I don't want to a lot because I feel like, Tim, people in my profession really love to nitpick at Dave Ramsey. I think a lot of us in like the regulated financial world um, we have a hard time with looking at his success and seeing a lot of what he's doing. And I think a, like a lot of us are kind of jealous in some ways. And we like to nitpick at the fact that he said you can make 12% mutual funds. And, uh, you know, I, I went to one of his rallies one time. Do you remember he used to have these rallies? Yeah. I went to one and this is like the, I don't know, probably 2013 or something. Okay. And it was kind of it was kind of weird. Like it was kind of salesy. It was kind of schlocky. The place was fired up, but like the whole thing was him just like slinging one product after another. And so like a lot of people in my world, we like to criticize that because we see all these streams of income and all these ways that there are these conflicts of interest with how he how he's um he's uh, referring business to these partners that you know kind of follow his philosophy. And so. I, I get that. Like, I understand how there's some problems there, but like, I just, I don't want to like go too far down that rabbit hole because I see my peers doing it all the time and I don't think it's necessary. It's just like, he's doing good work. He's helped people save and pay off debt probably more than anybody else. And like, he's serving an audience, Tim, that doesn't have the ability to work with a fancy financial planner and pay thousands of dollars to go through a financial planning process He's figured out how to scale um, personal finance through Financial Peace University for people that are just doing it for free in churches. And so I think he needs to be affirmed in that. He's done really great work. That's what I think, too. I think the people who pick at Dave Ramsey sometimes are like the person who found a comma out of place in Hamlet. And mm-hmm. then they absolutely miss the fact that, dude, you've got Hamlet. It's right here because somebody had to write it, but maybe nobody would have written it. It's fantastic. It's got plot. It's got character. It's got setting. It's got theme. Mm-hmm. It's ridiculously quotable all the way through. It's a landmark of civilization. Um, what are you picking out of, you know, this comma in Act 4, Scene 2 for? That's, to me, part of my problem with the nitpicks on Dave Ramsey. I, I feel like Dave is mm-hmm. is the starting point and the foundation. And once you thoroughly understand Dave, then I feel... Okay, at that point, you still have to retain your own independence and autonomy. I, I just like what you said. Okay, so cutting away in the opposite direction from Dave, there are just a lot of people who are cool with debt. Um, they just basically seem to think, hey, as long as I can make my credit card payments 
and my car payment, my boat payment, whatever, um, they're just fine with that. And why is that not good? Mm. So, um, yeah, that's a really good point. Because if you, you know, if you make a decent income, especially like, you know, you and I, Tim, we live in Kansas City, uh, up until a couple of years ago, the, it's pretty easy to like afford a reasonably priced home in Kansas City. And, you know, you can work at Cerner and make maybe even a hundred grand a year. And, you know, here in the Midwest, that's, that's kind of living pretty high on the hog. And so a lot of people, you can just kind of get by with coasting. You know, you just, you just kind of live your lifestyle and you, you know, you're setting up automatic contributions to your 401k and you're noticing that on a month by month basis, you know, the savings account is more or less going up. And so these are people that they're, they're just kind of coasting and they're maybe, they're maybe just getting a little bit soft, but things are kind of fine. So the problem with that is like, there's just a lot of possibilities that maybe you're missing out on. You know, if, if you, if you know about the power of compound interest, you know, tight, tightening up that belt and maybe trying to be more intentional about your money. If you really think about it, if you really run the numbers, you're maybe missing out on the opportunity that over decades, um, turning a small acorn seed into, into a very large oak tree by just, you know, doing a little bit more here, a little bit more there and trying to be a little bit more intentional about what you're doing. And so I think there's a lot of people, they aren't necessarily like going to be in financial ruin at, at any point in time, but just by being kind of, kind of lazy, you're, you're missing an opportunity to be truly kind of truly great and do some really terrific things. Okay. So are, are you basically saying that maybe the problem with the people who have four five, six credit cards is they are just absolutely not going to be able to capitalize on any of these great opportunities that are probably right in front of them. Yeah. I mean, it's probably just the difference between, um, you know, someone, uh, you know, probably living in somewhat of a rat race for us, rat race for decades, but they're getting by, they're going to have, they're going to, they're going to be able to retire, but maybe it's going to be a little bit stressful to someone that's going to have a chance to live in complete abundance down the road because they're really intentional about their life up front. And so, you know, I think some of what Dave Ramsey is talking about is like the people that are in truly bad shape, you know, where you've got tons and tons of credit card debt and, um, you know, it's one payment after another and you're, it's one bad decision after another. But what I'm referring to is what I see a lot is just people that are more, um, they're just kind of more getting along and they're coasting and, and, and they just kind of start doing one thing. And then it's a, it's a, you know, it's one thing after another that, over time kind of adds up. I gotcha. I gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Good to know. Um, then I guess one last question in this category of questions, then I think let's uh, spend a little time on the four biggest expenses people have. Um, my question is this, some people are really happy about the whole concept of opium, you know, OPM, other people's money. Um, mm -hmm. You know, like, Hey, I borrow $10,000 at 4%. And then I think I'm going to invest in the stock market and maybe I'm going to make 10% or 20% or 30%. Well, let's just say I make 20%. So 20 minus 4% that I'm paying, hey, that's a 16% gain. So why shouldn't I do that? Why shouldn't I, or maybe I should, should I leverage myself up to the hilt um, and see if I can't make, I don't know, a net of 
somewhere between six and 60%. Yeah, I want to hear your thoughts on this because this is a really interesting idea that I feel like is maybe becoming more prominent. Um, because in theory, like in, in an inflationary world, uh-huh. it actually is a, the rational thing to do is to borrow a currency that is inflationary to buy an asset that is deflationary to buy a strong, hard asset. Um, you know, the example that literally everybody does is they borrow money from the bank for let's call it 20, 15, 20 or 30 years. And they pay off a loan on a property that, um, in an inflationary world will appreciate. So that's the example that literally every person, you know, as boring as you are is, 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 is trying to accomplish. Now there are some people that, have the idea of buying a house with cash that are a little bit different. But what I'm saying is it's a pretty conventional take to borrow money from a bank to buy a house with the expectation that that house will appreciate. But the only reason why that really works is because we we live in an inflationary world where like the Federal Reserve, for example, like they literally have a goal of achieving inflation. Um, So there's a little bit of of a kind of top-down central planning going on here. Right. And so it's kind of perverse, but like the, the perverse thing is that it actually does make rational sense to do what you're talking about, even though I don't think it's like, uh, I don't think it's a great thing. I don't think it's like, um, you know, a, a, a godly thing to do to go into a ton of debt. Um, but I do think it does make rational sense. That this is kind of the perverse world that we live in. There's a there's a great book. Um, it's called The Ethics of Money Production by Guido Holzman. Okay. And, uh, and there's a quote in there that I'm not going to be able to quote. But what he talks about is that in in a world with a lot of kind of uh, fake inflation, where there's this inflation that's created because every everyone thinks that inflation is good, a lot of entrepreneurship just becomes financial engineering. A lot of entrepreneurship just becomes financial engineering. Really, you're not trying to figure out like how to, again, provide value to others, but you're just trying to figure out how to make money off of money and how to, how to borrow money from a bank and figure out how to make a return off of it. And so this is where you see like, um, what I mean by financial engineering is you see just a lot of like, you know, in Kansas City, like weird commercial real estate projects that like, they never really fill the space and it doesn't really make sense why it exists, but clearly somebody got a loan to do this and, um, and, uh, and, and they're trying to figure out a way to make money off of it. Um, or like, uh, you know, like you see like a lot of, Oh, there's nothing wrong with this. Cause you need these, but like storage facilities, uh-huh. right. Which is like the, the most basic lo- level of entrepreneurship where somebody figured out how to borrow money to buy a storage facility where people could like, um, you know, put their stuff in. It's like the most basic level of financial engineering possible. Right. Um, and I'm not knocking it because it's like, again, it makes rational sense to do that because there's a way to do it. But it's not exactly like inventing the light bulb. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. This, it's, this, it's not this a example creative, it's not entrepreneurial. It's not actually, um, well, the storage facility is, is an okay thing, as you mentioned. But I, I think some of the other things that you're mentioning, for example, uh, okay, I have to figure out, do we live in an inflationary world, which we do, or a deflationary world, for example, like in the 19th century, from roughly the end of the Civil War up until roughly about 
the beginning of the Federal Reserve, mm -hmm. the world was primarily deflationary. So, I mean, a person yeah. could save a dollar when they're 30 and it would spend like two when they were 60. So, I mean, if you took every dollar that you earned and if you buried it in a can in the backyard someplace, that was actually a brilliant financial move, you know, because that dollar exactly. was going to double in value every, and, and it would encourage people to work hard because, okay, hey, I'm 30. I think I'll work all I can and make as much money as I can because I don't have to worry about my currency getting eaten up. Um, but I just, I, I kind of take your point to be that if I live in a world where they aim for, they say they aim for about 2% inflation, but sometimes they go nuts, like in the 70s and maybe now when we have like 10% inflation, it mm -hmm. absolutely punishes people for saving. Um, exactly. and, and, and you might even say it punishes people for working because, well, hey, you're the suckers. You put in all that work, you get a dollar, and then next six months from now, it's going to spend like 90 cents, you know? You wind up in the wrong country like Zimbabwe, Argentina, or Germany in 1923. They're just going to hyperinflate your savings away. You know, grandma saves 20,000 bucks and then it buys a candy bar because they sprint, they spent, they uh, print so much money. It's just, it's a bad thing. You know, this money printing. Yeah. And some people are probably going to listen to this and they, they think we're kind of off our, off our, our rocker here. But if you think about it, most people that have a mortgage on their house and they are also contributing to a retirement plan and like buying index, index funds or something like that, they are doing what we're talking about because right. they're making a choice to not just pay off the house, but also instead of pay, paying off the house, they're actually investing in, in probably the stock market, right? For sure. So you're, you're doing a, a small version of that. Now, what we're talking about is maybe even getting a little bit crazier. Um, you know, like, especially like a lot of real estate investors have a lot, use a lot of leverage, but most people are doing that. Now, the way that it used to be though, in a deflationary world is that a house was a consumption item. You would, you would buy a house and you wouldn't expect that your $300,000 house would eventually turn into a 350, dollars $500,000 house. You would expect that over time, because it's a depreciating asset, that that $300,000 house would depreciate. It would become a $250,000 house, a $200,000 house. And so what people would do is that, Tim, they actually would just save up the money to buy a house because it didn't make any sense to borrow money to buy a depreciating asset. If you think about it, you know, if you're borrowing money to buy a $300,000 house, but then it's depreciating 250, 200, because that's what happens to a depreciating asset, you would actually be insane to borrow <laughs> money to do that. And so that's where it, now it starts to make more sense about why there used to be more kind of um, uh, skepticism of, of taking on debt because it, it literally was a, a very stupid move. Um, whereas nowadays, perversely, it does kind of make sense to borrow money to buy a house or in some cases to invest in real estate or even, even the stock market. If you own a stock, you own shares and businesses where their capital allocators are also using debt to fund their, their businesses. So it, it happens in the stock market too. Right, right. So I, I guess the conventional wisdom, um, if we don't live in a hyperinflationary era, is, mm -hmm. you know, like just an ordinary 2% per year inflation you know, maybe it makes sense to borrow money and then hopefully get a bigger return. Now, the major failing 
with that argument that I've heard is people say, okay, I'm going to invest in such and such, and I'm going to get a 20% return. Well, then you get one of those black swan events, you know, and then the stock market crashes or the company goes broke. And so instead of making 20%, you make negative 20%. Plus you borrowed money. So now you're negative yeah. 20 minus 4% interest is negative 24%. Um, so, I mean, that's kind of the fallacy. I mean, borrowing to invest to make money sounds great if it's 20 minus 4 equals 16. But it's bad if you get the black swan and then it just sort of destroys your whole argument. Um, so that's kind of what I think is maybe the problem with the other people's money. But I think some of the other things that you brought up is, I guess there's the moral question, which people kind of need to think about. And then I think a third thing is, Sometimes it's just hard to know exactly what's the type of era that you're in. I, I think you brought up kind of the point of, well, if it's an inflationary or maybe a lot of inflationary era, or if the tax situation is super complicated, well, individuals and businesses are going to spend a lot of time trying to figure out the lay of the land. And that's time wasted to a certain degree. That's time that could have been spent working or creating or developing or coming up with products and services that people actually need. But I mean, if I make a million dollars just simply because I'm really smart with the tax code, hey, good for me, but that only benefits me really. You know, that doesn't benefit the larger society. Mm. You know, if, if I'm an inventor, if I'm Thomas Edison churning out one invention after the next, hey, I'm really benefiting the larger society. So am I correct in understanding that you're just sort of saying we do have to spend some time trying to figure out is this an inflationary or deflationary or hyperinflationary era and we have to figure out the tax situation. It feels like a waste of time having to do all that, but we kind of have to do a little bit of that. What what exactly, where are you going with this exactly? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think I'm just saying like, um, yeah, hopefully you don't have to become like uh, some sort of like, you know, macroeconomist that like understands exactly where we are at in history. Um, but I think, I think interest rates kind of tell the story. So even if, even if you go to the bank right now and, you know, and put money in a savings account, which, you know, again, should be like a rational thing for people to do. Um, going back to the idea of hoarding and having low time preference and saving 20% of your money. But the, but the problem is like, you know, whatever the, I think my savings account is like has a 0.4% return or something like that. And so that should cause you to scratch your head and say like, that doesn't make any sense. I, I know that, you know, we're spending more at the grocery store today than we were a year ago. And so I think even in your own personal orbit, there are examples of this that, you know, you can, you can use in your own life. So um, I don't know that if there's like textbook, answers of what everyone should be doing right now. But I think in your own world, like you can, you can realize where you're at and, um, and, and, and use this to your advantage. And so like, like I, sometimes I come across people that are still from the old school and like, they have like all of their net worth in that savings account. That's at 0.4%. And like kind of, that's the plan. Right. And so and so like my, my job as a financial planner is not necessarily to like chide them profusely and like tell them what they need to be doing, even though I do offer some counsel, but my idea is just to help them understand like what problems they might be facing. 
you know, if you're in 0.4% on your money and inflation is according to the government, three to 4%, but you know, you could look at the Chapwood index or you could look at monetary inflation, which is a lot higher than that. I'm just telling you that you are losing real purchasing power over the decades in this strategy. So that's kind of my job. And so when I, when I, when I do that for, for a client, you know, what they might say is, well, I think we're just gonna have to deal with that. Maybe we just have to up our savings rate because we know that now we have to save more than we used to because of inflation. Or maybe their answer is maybe we do need to learn how to invest. Maybe it's time for us to look at index funds or real estate or stocks or, or something else. And so um, it should, in your own personal world, it should just be looking at that interest rate should be an indication that maybe it's time to get curious. Maybe it's time to read a book. Maybe it's time to listen to Tim's podcast or sit down with, sit down with Andy. Absolutely. Okay. Well, before we get into some specifics with expenses, which I think will be very helpful for people, um, I want to ask you about this concept in the personal finance world called the number. And, you know, the number might be, hey, you know, if I have half a million dollars in investments and if my investments return, I don't know, 10% per year, if I can live on that $50,000 per year, I'm good. You know, I've hit my number. So whatever, you know, that might be for a person, maybe it's a million, maybe it's 5 million, maybe it's half a million. Um, what are your thoughts on the number? Okay. So I, I like how Dave Ramsey has the baby steps and because it's an imperfect system and it's probably not for everyone. And there's, you know, there's different ways you could critique it, but just like the number, I think as humans, we just, we want simple answers. Yes. (laughs) So like I'll meet with a family and they'll just be like, hey, here's my stuff. Tell me where I'm at. How am I doing? Because people, they, they want to know where they're at. And so like I could nitpick about it and talk about how the number is flawed and, and there's all sorts of problems with the 4% rule, which we can talk about. Um, but I do think it's helpful to at least have like something to shoot for. Well, yeah, you've got a bad plan flawed. and a bad plan tends to be no plan. Exactly. My buddy says $5 million is the new millionaire. So okay. for better or for worse, because of inflation now, if you, if you want to brag about being a millionaire, it's actually $5 million. So maybe that's one way to think about it. Instead of being able to retire at a million, it's now $5 million for most kind of normal people. Now, of course, we could bicker about that because I think there's probably plenty of people that can retire on a million dollars today if they really got creative. Um, but that just kind of gives you an idea as to how maybe things have changed. So the idea of the 4% rule is if you, are you familiar with this, Tim? I'm sure you I, are. I am, I am, but go ahead and explain it for people. There's different ways of doing it, but the idea is if you have like a conventional portfolio, call it 60% stocks and 40% bonds, and you're going to retire in your 60s, if you take 4% of your starting point and then you raise that number by inflation every single year, the studies have shown that that more or less works out. And there's different ways we could we could talk about how people have um, interpreted that. But so if you have a million dollars, four percent of a million dollars is in year one, you take forty thousand dollars and you skim that off the top, and that that is what you have to live off of. And then in year two, you take forty thousand plus inflation, so maybe it's forty two thousand dollars, and that's what you have to live off of in year two. And so there's been studies that shown that if you stay invested, that, that tends to work out. Um, and so 
you know, I, I like that. I think most people should probably, you know, th- don't treat that as like an exact science because it's not, but I think it's a useful starting point to figure out where you're at and what it's going to take to get to, to get, to get to that um, place of uh, financial independence. Gotcha. Gotcha. So it's, it is helpful because otherwise people will think how much money is enough money? And the answer always seems to be when I have more, but if you had an actual number that you could hit, then maybe that would help people relax. But with again, the understanding that, okay, this is not an exact science. Um, This is good enough, good enough for life, basically. Um, okay, let's get into the poor biggest expenses, which I, I know you mentioned earlier. I'd like maybe some specifics, how people could save on taxes, housing, transportation, and food. And part of the reason I'm bringing this up is this. I think those four things probably constitute 75% of the average person's budget, taxing, housing, transportation, and food. Then people go, oh my goodness, I'm in hot water. I've got credit card debt. I've got to do something about it. And so then somebody else says, well, you need to make some cuts. And so usually the first thing anybody cuts is the fun part of life. You know, Mm. taxing houses, transportation, and food don't get touched. And then the other 25%, the part that makes them happy, okay, you're just supposed to never have any fun again for the rest of your life. Um, And then meanwhile, we do these other things as carved in stone. So I just, uh, I would love to get some of your thoughts on how do we make some reasonable cuts in taxing, housing, transportation, and food? Mm. Yeah, good point. Um, I like that too, because um, it, again, it kind of breaks it down into some simple categories. Cause yeah, yeah, I mean, if you just have those four or five things figured out, like that's kind of it right there. Um, So, okay. So the taxes, um, this is, believe it or not, this is basically you, you and mine and mostly everyone here in the United States. This is going to be our biggest expense over life. If you just think about the idea of tithing 15, 20, 30 plus percent over time to Uncle Sam and the state and you know, the city of Kansas City and, you know, whatever county you live in, that's, that's a huge amount of money over the course of your life. And so... You know, most of us, if you work in a W-2 job, it's kind of muted um, because it's pretty easy to pay taxes, you know, especially through the payroll, the payroll system. And so, um, you know, there's, there's, there are some things you can do. Uh, the most radical thing you can do is probably become a farmer. Okay. There are farmers in your family, Tim? Lots of them. They're all yeah, over so the farmer, place. Yeah, I have, still have farmers in my family, too, in Iowa. And, uh, you know, farmers are not W-2 employees. So if, you, if you've got a farm, you're, you're, you know, you're, a, you're a business owner. And so in the way that the tax code is set up today is that it's very much uh, amenable to business owners. And there's a subset of business owners that it's particularly favorable to, and that's farmers. Um, and so if you're like farmers, my, my brother's a CPA that deals with farmers, and he says they very rarely pay taxes, and when they do, they're pretty they're pretty upset about it. Um, <laughs> everything's kind of, yeah, so they have they you know they own depreciating property, they have depreciating equipment. Um, so if you buy a tractor, you can depreciate that tractor over a number of years, and tractors are very expensive. If you buy a truck, same thing. And so so that's the biggest thing. If if you, you know if you're a W two employee, you can consider a 
you know, a lifestyle change. Maybe in your forties, you become some sort of entrepreneur, or maybe you take a, maybe you take a, you know, a half step and you become a, you do a side business instead of quitting all at once um, okay. because, you know, for better or for worse, the tax code literally is just set up for business owners, um, to pay less in taxes. And so that's right. the first thing. Right. But, yeah. but the problem is that's not for everyone. You know, not all of us are designed to be business owners. Um, in fact, it's probably not even preferable if you're making a nice living and earning a nice income as a W2 employee, like a lot of people would prefer that lifestyle and that's okay too. And so here, you know, what, what you do is you, you, you want to take advantage of um, all of the vehicles that are available to you. So taking advantage of things like the 401k plan, the IRA, the Roth IRA, you know, the HSA is a nice one that I've been seeing people use more of. And so there are, there are things you can do. Sometimes they're with your employer. Um, sometimes they're not, but there are different accounts that you can use to save. So if you're putting money away, you can do that to either lower your taxable income now or lower it in the future. Okay, so here's, here's what I'm hearing you say. Maybe the smartest thing I could do would be to become a farmer because yeah. the second smartest thing that I could do would be for me to become some sort of a business owner or entrepreneur. And farmers are like those people only on steroids, basically. So farmer first, business owner second. And then I think you mentioned a third category that's very similar is start a side hustle. Start like a little business on the side um, and get some of the tax benefits from that. But let's say I'm just not wired to do that and I want to be an employee. Well, then I've got to learn just a little bit about the 401k and the Roth IRA and the mm -hmm. health savings account because I can get some tax savings with those things. That's, that's kind of what I heard you say. Did I miss anything? Yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, and it's really, you know, for a lot of families, um, you, you can do a few things with retirement accounts to kind of lower your taxes significantly. Um, and so, you know, I, I've been noticing, especially since they raised the standard deduction to something like $24,000 a year or whatever it is now, is that a lot of families that, you know, are in like the, like the, maybe the 12% tax bracket or even the 22% tax bracket, uh, which is the, you know, the kind of two lower tax brackets, you know, if you're making 80,000, $100,000 a year, you've got the standard deduction, uh, you're putting money away in retirement accounts, maybe you're using an HSA, um, maybe you own a home, so you're, you're, you're able to write off a little bit of the, in, uh, the mortgage interest. A lot of families are able to lower their federal income taxes pretty significantly. Um, so it kind of goes back to this idea of like acorns and like doing small things today and how that compounding over time can really, um, result in like the proverbial, uh, oak tree. But, um, but yeah, I think, I think for a lot of people like, there's, there's things you can do to just you know take advantage of what's already available through just boring old retirement accounts to lower your taxable right. income. Well, I'll give you one that I I've done a few times is and now this is tough mm -hmm. to do for an employee I think but so if you max out your four hundred one k at the time that was eighteen thousand dollars a year I could put in that and so whatever your income yeah. is just take the theoretical person who's maybe making oh I don't know seventy thousand a year. And then if you dump 18,000 into 
the retirement thing, the 401k, 70 minus 18 is 52,000. Well, then you're only paying taxes on that 52,000. So, I mean, you basically, you're paying yourself because you're saving the money and then you don't have to pay any taxes on that 18,000 bucks all on top of it. Now that's tough to do because, hey, maybe you needed that 18,000 bucks for something else. So maybe you're just going to have to, I don't know, not eat lunch for, you know, six months or something. But, you know, um, that's, that's kind of an extreme thing, but you will save money doing that. Yeah, you can. Yeah. We've no, I don't know, hopefully you'll run this soon, but like in 2020, I've even noticed that with like a lot of the uh, helicopter money stuff. So, um, the, the, you know, the government is giving away helicopter money for families with young children. In particular, there's a, there's a expanded child tax credit for families that make under, I think something like $150,000 a year. Okay. So, um, there's a couple different breakpoints. I, I don't remember the exact numbers off the top of my head, so don't quote me on that. But, but you want to take a look at those numbers if you have young children, because this could be one of those years that doing what you're talking about, like maxing out a 401k, gets you under that breakpoint uh, to kind of get these, you know, child tax credits and some of the other things like the dependent care credit um, that are being rolled out here in 2021. The thing that I always tell high school students, because if they're 16 and I'm teaching them personal mm-hmm. finance and you're, you're actually helping real adults who are in their 20s, 30s, 40s and 50s. Um, but just for a 16 year old, they've never heard of a 401k or a Roth IRA. I just say, hey, whenever you get a new job, just follow the HR person. Whenever they say we're going to talk about retirement, just follow them into the office yeah. and you know, if you're bored listening to them, stand up while they're talking so you won't fall asleep and then just sign up for the 401k, you know, and then figure it out later. That's my, my basic advice that I give people. Like, is that good? Am I telling people the right thing? When I was 21, 22, I made, uh, I had a, I was a junior in college at Iowa state and I made like $18,000 painting houses. Okay. At the time, I was like, that was like the most money I had ever seen. I I thought I was like the man. And I had a, a friend that was like, hey, man, you need to max out a Roth IRA. And uh, and I didn't do it, Tim. I didn't do it. I, I didn't know what a Roth IRA was. I didn't really even know what a mutual fund was at the time. I paid off some student loans, so it wasn't all bad. Uh-huh. But but that was really great advice. Yeah, well, I should have, I should, I should have. I should have listened to him. And so, so yeah, as a young person, you might not know like all of the ins and outs of what you're doing, but it is pretty solid advice to like, Hey, sign up for the benefits, take advantage of the matching program. If they have one, um, you know, God forbid if, if the best thing you can do is just to sign up for one of these target date funds, cause that's kind of a de- default option that a lot of these plans have, like it's better than doing nothing. And then guess what? Five to 10 years later, you're going to look back and say, I didn't really know what I was doing, but I'm glad I signed up for it. Because now, now that I have a more of an understanding of what's going on and I care more because I'm older and wiser, um, I, you know, I, I do it. So I think, I think sometimes young people do need to be prodded in that direction, even if they don't understand it yet, because sometimes, you know, you need to be kicked a little bit when you're young, when you're a young guy. Right, right, right. Yeah. It's like feeding a five-year-old steak. Mm-hmm. You know, they may not eat it on their own. But they probably will, actually. Um, They -hmm. won't understand why it's good for them, but they'll do it. Okay, well, let's get into the other big three, housing, transportation, and food. Um, How does a person save money on housing? 
Okay, so this man, this is so important right now, just because um, you know the, the Kansas City housing market's been crazy. I think this is kind of happening everywhere. But um, you know, one of the things to think about is if you're going to view your home as a consumption item, meaning it's not an investment property, um, you're not house hacking, which maybe you should, but if you're just kind of doing a conventional situation where you're just buying a house to live in, because that's what people do, I, I always try to encourage people to borrow less than what the bank will lend, mm. borrow less than what the bank will lend. Um, you know, at the very least, maybe it's, Maybe you're going to try to borrow two to three times your income if the bank's going to lend four to five times your income. But I think at the very least, like don't don't look at the bank to be your financial advisor because we've learned that over the years, you know, the bank doesn't know what's best for you. A lot of times, maybe they're going to lend you money that you don't necessarily want to be paying off. And so I think if you're viewing your house as a consumption item and not as an investment, you know, you're not house hacking or something like that, you should borrow less than what the bank would lend. And the other thing I would say is that, um, you know, my rule of thumb is five years. So if you're buying a home, um, you know, this has been bad advice recently just because the housing market has been so great, but I really don't like the idea of buying a home if you intend to sell it in like a couple of years. Now, I know there's some real estate investors that will um, fight me on this because they're kind of doing the thing where... You, know, you live in a house for two years and then you, you roll that capital gain over to the next house and they're doing that. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about like just regular people that are buying a home to live in. Um, the problem is if you're buying a home and selling it every couple of years, not only are you speculating on the, the rise in the price, but you're also just paying a lot in transaction costs. You're paying a realtor, you're paying a mortgage, mortgage broker. Um, and it's just very expensive to move. You know, you're, Maybe you're paying a moving company. There's always stuff you need to do to sell a property. When you buy a new property, there's always things you want to do to fix it up and to maybe buy furniture. And so anyone that's like ever rented and then like become a homeowner, you know that this is true. And so my rule of thumb is is five years for that reason. I like that. I like that. You know, I also you kind of hinted at something which I think would shock a lot of people because a lot of people were told that your house is going to be your greatest investment. But I remember reading one financial uh, person who was really kind of looking into things, but then he also told his own personal story. And he basically said, his story was great. Um, It was this, he bought a house 20 years ago in New Jersey for $166,000. Then he turned Mm -hmm. around 20 years later and sold it for three times that much. In other words, he made three hundred and I think thirty-two thousand dollars. So it went from like a sixth of a million to half of a million. And he said, "Hey, wow! I made three hundred thirty-four thousand dollars." Then he said, "Except if you add up all the interest that I paid, all the taxes that I paid, all the home repairs that we did," and he said, "And we didn't do very many, and just the other expenses." He said, "We actually made one thousand five hundred dollars." And then if you divide that over a 20-year period, we made 75 bucks a year. And so then he came to this conclusion that your house is not a gigantic money-making asset. It's just not. A lot of people view the house as an asset. A few people view the house as a liability. Like you said, people in a deflationary environment would understand that it's a consumption item, so it's a liability. 
But he said he thought his house was stranded between asset and liability. And so he called it a doodad, you know, said, mm -hmm. gosh, sure, it tripled in value, but all that cost got eaten up or all that benefit got eaten up. So 75 bucks a year, there's your house for you. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I think a lot of people are attracted, Tim, to just the idea that it's um, an asset that you can touch. You know, so like I, 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 I understand that because we live in a world where like everything is like fake magic money that's on the Internet. You know what I mean? So right. like even if you own stock or something like that, you, you don't, they don't even make stock certificates anymore. It's literally just your number in your in your screen on your screen. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so I, I kind of get that. Like I understand why people like the idea of owning an asset that you can touch. But but yeah, I mean if you if if you were to actually create a spreadsheet, I don't have one. Maybe I should. But a spreadsheet of all of the expenses that it takes to be a homeowner, um, it, it really does. I mean, it really does not seem like a like a beautiful ROI situation for me. And I, and, and I think most people would be surprised to actually look at the real numbers. I think what maybe confuses people a little bit is just that a lot of times when you buy a home, it is your largest asset. And so, you know, if you're seeing a property go up hundreds of thousands of dollars, you might just assume that the ROI has been phenomenal when in reality, it just looks like a lot because, you know, you've borrowed a lot to take, to take it out in the first place. And so what you might actually be seeing is just, more of leverage returns, but the fact that you were able to use other people's money um, makes it look like a better ROI than it actually is when maybe it's not as great as you thought at the beginning. Right, right. Okay, that's good. Um, okay, transportation and food. How does a person save money on transportation and food? Okay, um, so I know that some of the... Um, like personal finance people on the internet have made the case for like going carless and riding a bike. Um, man, I, I, I would love to get to that world. Like I would love, I would love to live like in a world that's very local again. Um, to me, that makes a lot of sense, but I just don't think that's realistic. I think that's a little bit of LARPing where you're just kind of hoping for the thing that makes a lot of sense. Like I, for better or for worse, like we kind of live in a car world, especially if you live in Kansas city. <laughs> Uh, so I do think you have to have, I mean, most people probably are going to have a car. Um, I'm totally aligned with the personal finance advice that says if you buy a Honda or a Toyota, that's two or three years old and well-maintained, that that's probably the, the way to go. Um, do, do you drive them until they just absolutely fall apart? Because I have, I was really okay. proud of a car that I got to 284 yeah. and a half thousand miles then my brother's got one that's got 285,000 miles. And then I thought, oh, good night. I'm just never going to beat this guy. But I would like to. That's my experience. So I, I'm driving uh, a car right now. It's not a Honda. It's a Volkswagen, actually. But it's paid off. And so even though it's kind of a piece of junk at this point, I don't want to get rid of it just because I love the fact that it's paid off. And I've learned that with like people that have paid off cars is they just – they see that it's great to have a car that's paid off and, you know, maybe they make a, rep a repair here or there, but there's something, there's a little bit of freedom in not having that payment that you want to kind of hang on to that car. It's, it's an asset. Okay. Okay. So here's what I picked up so far. Toyota or Honda, something along those lines, two and a half years old, um, drive it until it's paid off, drive it for another five years after that, 
That's kind of what I'm picking up so far. Do you want to add anything in terms of transportation? Well, I think you're in my you're in my Catholic Money Mastermind group, and uh, I was talking about how I think that should be like a status symbol in like the personal finance world. Like, you know, you should be able to brag about how many miles are on your car. And I was like, hey, my car has got like 150,000 miles on it. I thought that was like a big deal. And then somebody was like, no, I'm driving an F-150 that's got like 250,000 miles on it. And I kind of like that. I think that's, that's, uh, that's, you know, something to be proud of. So maybe in your household, you know, if you've got a big family or whatever, maybe you've got one car that's the quote unquote nice car, and then maybe you've got a beater. Um, that's the way that you think about aligning it. But yeah, I, I like the idea of having nice used cars. Um, you know, certainly having a car payment is, um, it's a liability. And uh, not only is the liability because you're borrowing money to buy a depreciating asset, but like, you know, you end up having to pay more for insurance because the insurance company is going to require a bigger, a bigger policy um, to have the full comprehensive coverage. Um, and it's, it's a payment that you, instead of paying off a depreciating asset, you could be, you know, investing in something like the stock market that that's going to be a lot better for you over the long run. That's, that's how I feel. And we could probably mm-hmm. talk about that forever, but let's move on to food. Um, how could we save food, save money on okay. food? I, okay. So I, I like this idea of, you know, everyone should do like one thing that's radical. And so instead of be trying to be like the crazy person that lives in the van down by the river and um, like knits his own sweaters and, you know, grows his own garden and is completely living off the grid. Um, like that, are you familiar with Jacob, Jacob Lund Fisker, I think is his name. Uh, no, I'm not. Okay. He's this guy that's like totally figured out how to live on like six grand a year. And that's what works for him. What's his he name? Wrote a book called Jacob Lund Fisker. He wrote a book called early retirement extreme okay <laughs> what i'm saying is like instead of trying to do that maybe what you do is you try to do one thing that's radical oh okay that's radical. okay he did yeah, he so did everything that's radical he did everything that's radical. okay right right so i had a friend one time and what his thing was is like okay for our first two years of marriage we are not going to go out to eat we're not going to go out to eat so for two years, while we're paying off our student loans, we're going to eat exclusively at home, which I think is kind of extreme. You know, most people are going to go out to eat in some way, shape, or form. Or maybe what I've done before is like, I when I go out to eat, maybe I don't I don't buy alcohol because we know that that's how restaurants make all their money, right? Right. Um, I guess what I'm saying is, you know, maybe that could be one thing that you do ex- extreme is instead of going out to eat, maybe you have nice dinners at your home or maybe you, you buy a nice grill or a nice smoker and, and that becomes a bit of a hobby for you. And so, um, so for sure, like, you know, if you can figure out a way to eat at home and to make dinner for yourself, that's probably a, the biggest thing you can do to save money on food. Okay. Okay. So, all right. So just do one thing that's extreme. And in this case, maybe it's no restaurants for two years. Okay, that's good. Um, okay, the last category of expenses that I really kind of want to talk about is entertainment. Um, I just feel if people are happy and content, they are probably going to do a little bit less retail therapy. Um, so what are, what are your thoughts on entertainment? Yeah, this is really good because... Um... 
I feel like this is one of those things that if you really take a step back and think about, um, you, you might be surprised about how much of a difference it makes about how, you know, how you're going to, what kind of life you're going to live in terms of entertainment. And so like, uh, you know, think about the things that people do for entertainment. Um, like I've got a buddy who fixes up classic cars. So he'll buy like old BMWs and he, he's got a big garage. And so one of his hobbies is he just fixes up these cars and it's like really fun for him. Um, I've got a friend who rides horses. And so, you know, she grew up on a horse farm and she does, uh, she does shows and, and she you know, has a number of different ponies that she raises on her own. Both of these are entertainment that I would expect. I've never done these things, but like I would expect that those would be very, very expensive. Oh, for sure. <laughs> now, maybe it's working for them. Maybe, maybe, maybe if, they have a, if they're honest about it and they take a hard look at what it is, maybe they're going to figure out how to make that work through changing some different things with their life. But you can also look at it and say, well, what, what can I do that's maybe a little bit cheaper? So maybe, maybe instead of... Um, you know, doing classic cars or horses, maybe you take up like trail running or biking where, you know, you could, you could run trails and you just, you get a pair of shoes and you could figure out how to run trails and you do that for free. There's some, there's actually some great trails around Kansas city that I've, I've done. And, uh, it's pretty inexpensive because there's some nice parks here in Kansas city that are basically free. Um, so you can, you can think about what those free entertainment offerings are. Um, I, I know a great family that, their family vacation every year is the beach because if you've, if you go down to a beach, it's just free, you know, you, you park and you, and you go and you hang out on the beach for a day. And that's instead of going to Disney world um, where, you know, I don't know, you're, you're spending thousands of dollars to do that. The kids are having a great time by literally just hanging out and playing the waves. And so um, that's pretty drastic. You know, the Disney world or the beach, that's a family vacation that could swing things a couple of different ways. And, as a kid, like, does it really make a huge difference? I think, you know, probably my vacations at the beach were just as memorable as, I never went to Disney World, but I have, I have to imagine it would have been just as memorable. You know, I'm just going to tell a little story that had a powerful impact on me. Here I was teaching personal finance, but I was making an exception when I was getting together with family. And, you know, just tossing all my personal finance ideas out the window and uh, long story short, I wanted to take a bunch of kids zip lining in the family. And, yeah. you know, we found a discount and all that. But nonetheless, I think I spent, I don't know what it was. It could be $100. It could be $200 on zip lining. And just for whatever reason, it just seemed like people were crabby and impatient all day. Mm -hmm. Then we went home and the nine-year-old and I got out a board game and we were playing board games. And then she loved it. And we did that yeah. for four or five hours. And we just had a rip-roaring blast. And then afterward, I guess all my personal finance ideas came back to me. And I thought, we had 100 times more fun for free with the board yeah. game versus all the money that we spent on the zip lining, where just for whatever reason, people were just in a bad mood. So I, I guess I'm just taking your point and believing it. Maybe you can have a better time at the beach than you can spending a thousand bucks at Disney World. 
Yeah, and I'm not, I'm not saying that people shouldn't do things that bring them joy, but I'm just trying to, maybe I'm trying to say that there's a way to be more intentional about it. So are you familiar with the Block family, like H&R Block? Um, I don't know their personal story. Okay, they're a Kansas City-based company. Um, it's uh, it's a tax tax firm. Right. And my that wife had a chance. My wife had a chance to actually meet Mrs. Block. Wow. Uh, Mrs. Block is an elderly woman now, and uh, she's uh, um, God bless her. She's actually been going through cancer. That's that's how my wife had a chance to meet her. And uh, anyway, she was, she was chatting with Mrs. Block, and one of the things that Mrs. Block has the ability to do now that you know they've built this business and they've kind of build a nice, uh, you know, a nice um, amount of wealth for their family is they, every year, Tim, they rent out a European town for their family reunion. Oh my gosh. So they rent a little beautiful village in Europe and they literally rent it out. And like, that's their family reunion. And they fly everyone in and it's a great time. And so like, I guess what I'm saying is like, I'm not saying that you should like not fix up classic cars if it brings you joy, but maybe there's a way to be more intentional about it. Maybe there's a way to kind of plan for it in a way that's more like Mrs. Block. I mean, I'm sure Mrs. Block had to make a lot of sacrifices decades ago to get to the place where they could rent out a European village to do these family uh, these family vacations every year. Right, right, absolutely. Well, that's that's good. That's very good. You know, in the classic car thing, I had a student who okay, this was his hobby. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't remember how much he sank into the first one. I think it was close to about $8,000. He was buying these um, Chevys from about roughly 1959 and uh, struggling to find the parts to replace them. Mm-hmm. Um, but he worked very hard at this. And then long story short, he turned around and flipped that first one for, I don't know, $18,000. So me netted roughly about 10,000 bucks. But it was a big risk. It was absolutely a big risk. Then, long story short, he was doing this for about three or four years, and I think he netted a hundred and two thousand. So maybe your oh, nice. maybe your B and W friend, you know, yeah. can somehow manage to do that, or or maybe the girl with the horses can get a side hustle that involves giving people horseback rides or training people to ride horses. Um, maybe there's a way to do that. Um, of course, the critique on that is if you turn your hobby into a business, you won't like it anymore. People do say things like that, but I don't know. Yeah. I think this is just an opportunity for maybe people to think creatively and come up with more than one solution. That's great. I love that. Okay. Well, when it comes to investing, I, I think I could ask you 50 questions, but maybe I should just ask you one. What would be your advice or or maybe your pattern of advice that you give people when it comes to investing? Hmm. So I would say a uh, very good question. So I would say I, I would maybe start with the idea that we brought up earlier, where for better or for worse, investing is kind of a necessary evil, um, where we're kind of in a world where it's not the case that you can just literally save money and expect that um, your money will hold its value. You, you, know, you kind of have to earn an income twice where because of inflation, um, if you want to preserve the value that you've created through your job, it's not really enough to just put money in a savings account. And so I, I think people kind of have to start with that problem. Um, and then, you, and then the way you deal with that, you know, I work with a lot of young families. And so Tim, I don't want to limit them by 
giving them kind of like the, the playbook because I recognize that like the, investing is a pretty personal thing. Um, you know, some people are going to gravitate towards their personal business. Some people are going to gravitate towards Bitcoin. Some people are going to gravitate towards um, investing in index funds. And so like, but I, so I think if you, if you know what the problem is, what that should do is that should encourage you to actually try to become a, an investor and educate yourself by, you know, picking up a, vo- a book or listening to a podcast or watching a YouTube video or, you know, going through Financial Peace University, because I think Dave Ramsey, you know, he, he gets people started. You know, you start with Dave Ramsey, then you pick up some other stuff and, and you go from there. Um, so I think that's it. If you start from what the problem is and then you start to educate yourself, you know, it's a, kind of a lifelong process of, of educating yourself and learning how to become an investor. Um, I think that's it. Now, what I would say is like, I think there's a limit to that. I don't think that everyone should become obsessed with investing. Like I named my firm simple wealth planning because I do think it's, it's counterproductive to, to screw with it a lot. And, you know, history has shown us that a lot of times just being a kind of the passive buy and hold type of investor has produced the best results. And so I don't want to go as far to say that investing becomes like a day to day hobby for you. I don't want people to become the, you know, the retired dentist that literally spends the entire day day trading. Like that's what his hobby is because I think, um, I don't think that's healthy either. I mean, I think investing should serve us in helping us achieve our goals in life. Um, and it's necessary, but, um, I, you know, I, to me, like, I, I believe that we all have our own unique gifts to serve and like, we shouldn't all become like these day traders. I don't, I don't think that's productive. Right. Well, yeah, that would be very difficult. I feel anything can happen on a given day in the stock market. I just wouldn't day trade. You know, like if I buy something at 10 o'clock in the morning and then sell it at 3 p.m. in the afternoon, I, I just feel like I'm asking for trouble. Even if it's a good stock, anything can happen on a given day. The market can drop 5% today. And so, you know, just bad things can happen. Uh, if if a person comes to you and I don't know, let's say they're single and they're making $70,000 a year and they're 25 and they want to work with you, do you end up giving them particular recommendations, whether it's in the stock world or whether it's in the real estate world? Do, do you wind up giving them specific recommendations? Yeah, so we do we do things a couple of different ways. Um, I will give people general guidance on their financial plan um, and then help them execute it on their own. So this would be like your proverbial DIY investor. And then I also do the work. So like we have people that will say, Hey, we want you to actually, you know, manage our assets for us. And so we do both. The, the way that I like to kind of think about investing is um, I like to think about um, investing as being an ownership, having ownership and shares in a business. Um, just cause to me, like as a mental model, that's kind of what I think of investing as being like you, basically get a partner with entrepreneurs and you have, you get to own shares in the same businesses that entrepreneurs are owning. And so we do that through both individual stocks and ETFs, um, you know, individual stocks just being like the direct ownership, but also ETFs of, you know, essentially being a fund where you can own, um, and you can own one fund that gives you access to a number of different shares. And so, you know, however you execute it, if it's, uh, it's an individual stock or an ETF or an index fund or a mutual fund, 
like just mentally speaking, that's kind of how I like to think about it. You're, you know, you're partnering with these entrepreneurs and you get to own shares in a business. That's good. I like that. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have, if you have time, I'd like to ask you questions about marriage and kids. Okay. Um, because I, I just think of whoever you marry, that person's probably going to bring you 85% of your happiness in life, something like that. And you know, when I started teaching the personal finance class, I, I learned rather quickly that some people were just bored when you brought up money and maybe their parents signed them up mm. for the course. Yeah. And it struck me that half of the class needs to be about happiness. Half of it needs to be about money and half of it needs to be about happiness. And so, you know, people have pointed out that whoever you marry, that's either going to be the most brilliant financial decision you're ever going to make or it's going to be the worst uh, and, and money is, is not the key thing, but it's going to creep into it. I mean, the key thing is going to be love and God and children and, and things along those lines. But just nonetheless, a couple comes to you. What, what is your advice for a married couple? That's a good insight, Tim, because, yeah, I mean, I think like me kind of referring earlier to when I was 21 and didn't know what a Roth IRA was, I think a lot of times like you get interested in personal finance because of just moments in your life. Maybe you, you know, it's the harsh reality of student loans in your twenties or, um, you know, it's your first real job. And for the first time in your life, you're trying to figure things out or you get married or you have kids. Like that's what I find people start to really care is like in these um, kind of momentous life events. And so I'm not surprised that you've experienced maybe young kids that weren't all that curious. Cause I feel like that was me at one point. <laughs> right, right, right. When you get older and things happen. And, and I, you know, I've noticed that with young families, sometimes it's like thirties and forties. Yeah. Like I, I meet with someone there for the first time, they're kind of waking up to what the possibilities are and what they could be doing. Um, so yeah, marriage, what, what's the first thing? Yeah. I mean, we've all read like, you know, the articles that talk about a lot of how a lot of divorce proceedings today have got money listed in the documents where they talk about money being one of the, one of the main issues. Um, I don't know. I think, I think what it's, what a lot of that is getting at is maybe just some deeper truth about relationship where, you know, if you're just kind of on the same page with your partner in general and in life, um, you know, a lot of the disagreements about money kind of work themselves out. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I get, I think there's a found more foundational truth about your marriage. That's more than just like making sure that you, you know, have, have a financial plan in place or, or went through financial peace university. But, but yeah, when, when I meet with a young couple, um, you know, I've got some steps that I'll take them through. You know, the, the very first thing that we'll usually do is we will create an actual net worth statement. So okay. we'll list all the assets, we'll, eat, we'll list all the liabilities, we'll figure out what their actual net worth is. And sometimes just from a practical point of view, Tim, you're, you're seeing for the first time maybe what your spouse has got going on. Um, so, you know, so if you haven't combined finances, you're like, oh, I didn't know that, I didn't know you had this account over there. I didn't know that grandpa had given you, given you this trust fund. Um, he never told me about this credit card. I knew you said you had student loans, but I didn't really know exactly what that meant. Um, and so I think it's just useful to just get the, get the information, the hard data out there. Because um, what you're doing is you're opening up to your spouse and, and you're, combi- you're combining your, your finances. Right. Well, and so that's, I, yeah. 
I, I feel like there's some shame associated with things because I don't know, yeah. let's say somebody owes a hundred thousand dollars and they just never, ever told the other person that during all the dating, you know, maybe they date for who knows a year and then it comes out later. Yeah. You owe this hundred thousand dollars over here. Um, I think a lot of people would wonder, well, why didn't you tell me this earlier? And I, I, I feel like this is potentially devastating information for people that have this sprung on them. Yeah, I think that's probably useful um, to actually, I mean, I think probably during the, you know, if there's like a, um, an engagement, it's probably good to start talking about that. Like, hey, just to let you know, like, this is what you're, you're going to be getting into. Um, just, just to make sure that, you know, you're, you're going into marriage with eyes wide open. I don't know if that necessarily means you need to like create a joint bank account right away, or you need to do all the work before marriage. But I think that at least to just start having a conversation about that. So like when I was engaged to my wife, she told me that she had student loans and, you know, there was a, like on her part, she felt a little, a little sheepish about it because she knew that I was going to be kind of inheriting that loan, but that was a good opportunity for us to like, band together around that because I was able to say, hey, no problem. Like, I understand that I was there at one point in my life too. And so like, I'm going to help you pay that off and we can, we can kind of tackle this together. So I think a lot of times, you know, most young families, Tim, they have debt. Like, that's just the way that most fam- like, that's just the way it is. And so one of the most encouraging things that I see is what, what, when a young couple will get fired up about paying off the student loans, paying off the credit cards, paying off the house. Um, that's a that's a fun goal, short-term goal that people can get fired up about. Yeah, it's a bonding experience for the two yeah. of them. I guess it's like anything that has adversity. Adversity is either going to break you in half or it's going to bond you together. Yeah. You know, something else that you said earlier, which I just really want to highlight, I think it's really good, is that, you know, people will say, hey, money fights and money problems is the number one cause of divorce. But you said, correct me if I'm wrong, that the relationships are really the key point. It's not the money that breaks a couple. There are deeper factors involved in the relationship. I I always kind of felt like money is a symbol of how people are going to live. Like maybe one person's more of a saver, maybe one person's more of a spender, and Mm. this is just how they want to live their life. But also, too... Maybe it's just a question of, are we willing to compromise? Like, is the super saver willing to loosen up a little bit, maybe? Or is the super spender willing to tighten up a little bit? Uh, That's kind of what I was getting from what you were saying. Am am I understanding you correctly? Yeah, yeah. There's a... uh... There's this mental model. I I think it's from Dave Ramsey, where he talks about, you know, in every marriage there's there's the nerd and then there's the free spirit right right that's his metaphor is that his okay yeah and so the nerd of course is the one with the spreadsheets and then the free spirit is just the one that party yeah and and like that's a some of that is just a personality trait you know it's not a condemnation on your um your character necessarily and so i think you just recognize that that exists it should it should help 
if you're the, I'm kind of the nerd. So if you're the nerd, that should help you realize that maybe you need to lighten up a little bit. That's right. And let the, let the free spirit be, be the free spirit. And if you're the free spirit, hopefully that might help you understand that, hey, the nerd has got something to offer here too that can help our family. And so I think in marriage, like there's going to be roles. It's, it's not, maybe it's not, it's not realistic to think that like everyone is just going to kind of come to Jesus and like be the nerd in, in a marriage. But like, if you can recognize that there's going to be roles and there's going to be certain people that are going to be more interested in handling the money issues. And then maybe the other spouse is more the free spirit. And you're the person that's in charge of helping the nerd loosen up and, and live a little bit. Like, I think that's okay. We can have roles in marriage. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I have a last question on marriage here. Um, and it's this, what do you think of prenuptial agreements? You know, I've never come across this with a case with a client yet, which I'm glad for because I don't think that I am an expert on it and I have like a lot to offer. So I'd love to hear your thoughts, Tim. My, my initial reaction is that, um, prenuptial agreements are kind of against the concept of marriage because you're kind of going into marriage, at least in some respect with one foot in. Um, and so I'm suspect of them, but I recognize that like, if you are, uh, a wealthy family who's got a reckless son, who's going in and out of different marriages and he's, you know, he, he he's, he's, he's meeting the, you know, the blonde at the club and he's going to, get married to her overnight in Vegas, like that family might want to do something to protect the son and the family money. Um, I've never come across that. And so, you know, you see, you hear about those in movies and things like that. And so I know that that could be something that that might make some sense, but. Um, that sounds like an exciting uh, movie. I want to see that one. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the bat, uh, the, uh, um, the hangover or whatever. It sounds like something that would have happened. Okay. But any case, but yeah, that's my initial thought. Um, I'm not an expert. What are, you, what are your thoughts? Well, I, gosh, maybe it's a similarity in our upbringing. I think we grew up 45 miles apart and, yeah. uh, and we both have, you know, similar religion, same religion. So maybe, maybe there's our background, but I, I agree with you. I think that a, a prenup in general, not always, uh, so not a hundred percent of the time, but it seems to me like 90% of the time or more, it goes against the concept of two people becoming one, you know, one, one flesh, you know, one spirit, basically that, you know, you're supposed to do everything, <coughs> excuse me, for the good of the other person. And, mm -hmm. uh, the whole concept of a prenup seems to me that, well, you're still sort of worried about protecting yourself. You know, I guess in the ideal marriage, uh, everything is supposed to be for the team. It's supposed to be a team. And nah, now we've just got this little escape hatch thing going on over here. I, I, I think, you know, just on one level, psychological level. So if I get a prenup, maybe I'm thinking this marriage is doomed. On some level, on some subconscious level, maybe conscious, I'm thinking, you know, there's a good chance this whole thing's going to fall apart. Because maybe deep down, I'm not ready or she's not ready. Mm -hmm. That's just kind of my feeling that maybe the relationship needs more work before we start thinking about prenups. Yeah, yeah. T totally agree. Um, and, and, and as you said earlier, like the, the biggest decision you can ever make 
in your life is who you choose as your spouse. Um, and that relates to finances as well. You know, if, if you've got a good and virtuous partner, like that's, you know, that's the most kind of, that's the, you know, the best asset you could ever have in, in a sense. So, um, yeah, hundred percent with you on that one, Tim. Andy, I, I want to be super respectful of your time because I believe you told me that you had roughly about a two hour block and, yeah, that's and right. we're going to get to the end of that. Maybe we could do a, a second round at another point. Yeah, but I love that. I, I really would love that tremendously. For and for now, though, uh, can you just give us some parting wisdom, some parting thoughts? Just what should I okay. ask that maybe I didn't ask? <laughs> parting wisdom or parting thoughts? Um, gosh, you know, I would say, I would say there's just you know so much opportunity. Um, you know, you and I are doing a podcast right now. And we're having this conversation over Zoom. And we live in a world where this is gonna sound kind of cheesy, but there really is opportunity to learn anything you want to learn. And you know, we talked about our grandparents that, you know, there were there were just not a lot of options for them. Like there was what kind of one way that you did thing and did things. And if you're a farmer in Iowa, your parents or your, your children were probably gonna be the same. But today, the world has totally changed. And so I, I think what that should encourage all of us to do is just to be curious, be curious and to learn as much as possible. Um, and uh, I think that's the opportunity that we have. And so, you know, if it means like, you know, you start in, 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 the term, in, in, in terms of personal finance, if you start with, um, you know, the, the Dave Ramsey stuff, and that encourages you to start listening to, um, you know, the, I like the uh, Radical Personal Finance. That's one of my favorite personal finance podcasts, Joshua Sheets. And then Joshua Sheets encourages you to um, maybe pick up a book here or there. Like, I, I think there's just so much opportunity for us to learn that like we live in like the golden age of free information. Um, that's what I would say. Like, if you're a young person again, kind of going back to your, you know, your twenties or for learning. Well, I should have said it's a, it's a lifetime of learning really. Um, it's uh, that's what I would encourage everyone to do just to educate themselves as much as possible. Cause there's a lot of opportunity to do that. Awesome. Andy, thank you again so much. And uh, I hope we do this again very, very soon. This was good, Tim. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, you bet. Thank you for listening to this episode of Seemingly Ordinary. The biggest favor you could do for me would be for you to download one of Andy's podcasts or to share this episode far and wide. Until next time.